As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, let us hear of your steadfast love in Christ, for in you we trust. Make us to know the way we should go, for to you we lift up our souls. Deliver us from our enemies, O Lord, for we have fled to you for refuge. And teach us to do your will, for you are our God. Let your good spirit lead us now on level ground. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark, chapter 7. Mark, chapter 7. On many of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1072. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 7, verse 31. And so Mark chapter 7, verse 31 through the end of the chapter is going to be our text for this morning. So Mark chapter 7, beginning our reading at verse 31. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Then he, that is Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Uh, This passage is really bringing to the end a a section of Mark's gospel, a section that began in chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000. There's been a a series of stories here composing a section. Uh, We'll start a new section, Lord willing, when we get on to chapter 8, and it will be a section that in many ways will parallel what we've read in this particular section. Uh, But the reason I share that with you, that this is sort of structurally the end of a section, is because this doxology of praise that we find at the end of this, te- of this chapter, of this text, that serves as the end commentary on the story we just read, also in Mark's gospel serves as the end commentary of this entire section. It's Mark's pronouncement of all that we've seen Jesus do from the feeding of the 5,000 down to this moment. And the proclamation over all of it is the proclamation we find in verse 37, he has done all things well. Uh, Mark means that not just to be an accurate account of how the crowd reacted to this healing event, but Mark means it to function as the comment on what all of Jesus has done. He has done all things well. Uh, The focus of the text is really on this praise that comes at the end, praising God for all that Jesus has done, and in a particular way, acknowledging Jesus Christ to be the promised Messiah who was coming into the world. Uh, That's what we really see going on 
in this passage, a clear indication that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he is acknowledged as such by this wonderful word of praise. So how do we want to think about this passage together? Well, first we want to think about our gracious Savior. That's the first thing we see in this act of mercy to this poor afflicted man, that he is a gracious Savior. And Mark uses this event to showcase to us a glorious promise that God had given. And so the glorious promise is the second thing we want to consider. And finally, we want to end thinking about that great doxology. See, boys and girls, I promised you'd hear that word again, a great doxology that comes at the end of the passage. And so that's how we want to think about this passage together this morning, a gracious Savior, a glorious promise, and a great doxology. Um, The Savior has come from where he was, where he had just performed that miracle in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and so we had said that that was northwest of Capernaum, and now he's kind of, from your perspective, headed around, and now he's coming back down uh, southeast, and he's coming around to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he ends up in the region of the Decapolis. And if that location sounds familiar, it should, because we've come across that location once before in Mark's gospel. This was in the occasion where he had, Jesus had set free that man who'd been afflicted by the legion of demons. Uh, you remember that, that exorcism where God had driven out the legion of demons, and after Jesus had, had cured this man, cleansed him from these spirits, he said to him in Mark 5, 15, or 19 and 20, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So this is a region that's not unfamiliar with Jesus, not unfamiliar with his mighty works, and maybe it's on account of this man's proclamation, going around sharing all the Lord had done for him, that causes this group of people to come to Jesus as they do, and to come to him bringing this man who is significantly disabled. Uh, We're told that a group of people bring the man to Jesus who's described for us in verse 32. Um, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Um, This man could not hear at all, and that speech impediment is so severe that he's as good as mute. Um, It's sort of a, a different way of saying it, but it's a way of saying he had such difficulty speaking that he really could not make himself understood. So this is more significant than just a simple speech impediment. This is the kind of impediment that renders him, for all intents and purposes, mute, unable to communicate with people in a way that they could understand. And this group brings this man to Jesus and asks him to lay his hand upon him. Now, it's not really clear at this point what they expect to happen. Um, They're so shocked when he's healed later that it's sort of, it's almost like they didn't really expect that. Almost maybe that they just expected Jesus maybe to pronounce a blessing as a holy man over this poor afflicted soul. Um, But of course our Lord does much more for this man than anyone could have imagined and shows himself to be a gracious savior in the way that he relates to him. Um, The way we see Jesus as a gracious savior first is in the attention that he gives to this man. The people that brought the man to Jesus would have been content if he'd simply put his hand on him and then passed along. 
Um, But Jesus gives him attention. There's a group of people here, but Jesus singles him out for attention. The first thing Mark tells us is that he took him aside. He took him away from the crowd. That's Mark's way of saying Jesus gave this man his undivided attention. And, And that, I think, is not something that we should just pass over as a note, that the Lord was willing to give this man the focus of his attention, to focus only on him. Because this is just the kind of person that anyone in the crowd might have thought Jesus has no time for. Right? What good is a deaf man who can't respond to a preacher? Right? Jesus' mission is a preaching mission. Jesus came as a proclaimer. Right? We were told from the very beginning of Mark that that's how we were to think of Jesus' mission in the world. He went about proclaiming, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And people in the crowd might have been tempted to think, what can a preacher do with a deaf man? What, what, is, what use is a deaf man to a preacher? He can't hear him. And even if somehow this preacher could make himself understood, he can't respond to him. Even if he makes an impact, the guy can't share that with him. He's exactly the kind of person the crowd might be tempted to think. Jesus has no time for someone like this. Jesus has more important things to do. And yet, what does Jesus do? He shows his graciousness by giving this man his undivided attention. And not only does Jesus give him his attention, he takes the time to communicate with him. Now, at first, it sounds like a very strange kind of thing that Jesus does by putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting and then touching his tongue. And we might be tempted to say, what what does this mean? And certainly, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this question and a lot of wild theories advanced on what sort of the secret meaning is behind the healing. Is this a particularly difficult affliction that Jesus can't just speak a word and heal? He has to go through this whole rigmarole. That seems to me to be all nonsense. Um, I think the, the most obvious explanation is the clearest. Jesus cannot say anything to a deaf man that can be understood. And so what does he do for him? He accommodates himself to what the man can receive. He can't hear, but he can feel fingers in his ears. He can't understand what Jesus is saying, but he can understand when Jesus goes from his mouth to the man's mouth. Now again, this might strike you as you're reading it as gross, that Jesus spits Um, I was going to share with you boys and girls later, we get an Aramaic word in the text. I'll share with you a Greek word. Do you know what the Greek word to spit is? Patuo. That's that's a word you can all remember, I think. Patuo. That's spitting. And we think, gross. Um, But we also have to remember, their world is not our world. They didn't think about germs the way we thought about germs. And they thought of saliva as having some medical uses, some purposes. They knew it was not the same thing as water. And if you read ancient medical texts, even Galen talks about the uses of saliva. So they thought about it a little bit different way. It might seem very strange to us, but I don't want to get distracted by all of that. What is Jesus clearly doing here for this man? He's communicating something to him that he can understand. I'm going to do something for your ears, 
I'm going to do something for your tongue. From my hand to your ears, from my mouth to your mouth. There's something that God is doing in this for him. And Jesus is taking the time to accommodate himself to this man and to speak to him in a way that he can understand. And isn't that just like Jesus? Isn't he still doing that to us? Speaking to us in ways that we can understand. Accommodating himself to our understanding so that we can understand the wonder of what he's going to do for us. He gives him the gift of attention. He gives him the gift of communication. And then as a gracious Savior, he speaks a word of restoration. He not only does all of this for the man, he restores him too. It's this beautiful picture of Christ's love for the man that he communicates with a look, with a sigh, and with a word. That's what we read in verse 34. And looking up to heaven... He sighed and said to him. This all is a measure of the compassion of our Lord. He looks up into heaven, and what is that look? It's a look of intercession. It's an unspoken indication to everyone who's there, including this man who can't hear, that Jesus is looking to his Father to do what he's about to do. That what is about to happen is a display of divine power mediated to him through the intercession of Christ on his behalf. It's a look of intercession. And then there's this wonderful expression that he sighed. He looked up into heaven to pray for him, and then he sighed over him. What is this expression? Um, It's an expression of compassion. It's an expression of sympathy and sorrow for the situation in which this man finds himself. It's a sigh over what sin has done to the world that the Father made so good that people have to bear afflictions like this. I want to be clear, it's not that the man had done something sinful that caused him to be struck deaf and mute, But it's what sin has done in the world. Luther said we could see this as a sigh that Jesus is offering for every affliction of every person from the first of the world to the end. A sigh that this is what sin has brought into the world in general and this is what what sins have brought to this man in particular. This kind of affliction. This kind of ruin of what God made good. John Calvin, I think, said it well. This sighing enables us to perceive the vehemence of Christ's love towards men for whose miseries he feels so much compassion that it causes him to sigh to see this and then to speak that wonderful word of restoration over this situation and to say simply, be opened. One word. Some people argue if it's Aramaic or Hebrew. You guys can get into that later. Um, It's one word. It's a word that performs what it commands. He says, be opened. And what happens to the man? His ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly 
what Jesus commands is performed. Like one commentator said, this may have been the first word he ever heard. It was the word of Jesus commanding his ears to work. And they worked. And his mouth to speak. And he spoke. It's the word of Jesus that performs what he commands. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? To see what Jesus does for this person. To think about how radically this would have changed this man's life. But Mark means to show us this, glorious, this gracious Savior and what he's done for this man in order to remind us of a glorious promise that God had made through the prophet Isaiah. Mark means us to think of Isaiah by using that strange word he uses for the man's speech impediment. It's not the ordinary way of saying that someone is mute. It's not a word that appears anywhere else in the New Testament. It only appears one other place in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that they would have known and that they would have used. The word only appears one other place. It's in Isaiah 35, 6, that the same word for muteness is used. And here's how the word is used in that context. Here's what Isaiah 35, 4 through 6 says. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's a word that Mark, I think, intentionally uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to clue us back into that promise of Isaiah to remind us of that glorious promise, one of the great restoration promises of the Old Testament that was meant to encourage God's people and to give them hope in the midst of their afflictions. The people were to hope for that day when God himself would come and save his afflicted people, which was to be a source of hope and encouragement for a downtrodden people. There is a day coming when God will come himself, and when God comes, he will save you, and then everything will be changed. There will be a restoration so radical that everything evil is going to be flipped on its head. A wonderful day that God himself will bring. And Isaiah, as a great artist, to, to compose that picture for us, says, and what will that restoration consist of? It'll consist of the healing of these great four afflictions. Blindness, deafness, lameness, and muteness. One person pointed out that that really summarizes the whole of our being. Eyes and ears are what we receive and perceive the world through. And our mouths and our feet are our facilities of our faculties of action, how we say things and how we do things. And so they represent sort of all of us, all that we can receive, all that we can do are sort of represented in these various afflictions. And this is what Isaiah uses to say God is going to come and radically restore the whole self so that blind eyes will be opened. And deaf ears will be unstopped. And people who could not receive and perceive will. 
And at that time, the lame will not just be able to walk, they'll leap for joy. Right? It's not that the lame will walk, it's that the lame will leap with joy. And it's not just that the mute will speak, the mute will sing. That's what God will do. That's the day that's coming. That's why we sang that song, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. I'm sure that verse was inspired by Isaiah's promise. I haven't talked to Charles Wesley, but I'm going to assume it's true. Inspired by the promise of Isaiah here. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, you loosen tongues employ, ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. Right? This is what this, the Lord will do when he comes. That was the promise that Isaiah made. This great day was coming when the Lord will come and save us, and then these things will be true. Then these things will be realized. And it's summarized beautifully in Isaiah 35.10 when we're told that the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There's going to be no more sighing and sorrowing like we experience, like Jesus experienced and shares with us. Those things will flee away And the only thing that will remain is everlasting joy. And everyone who read this said, that's what's going to happen when Messiah comes. Everyone was agreed. The rabbis were agreed. Tradition was, this is a clear testimony of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, these are the things that he will do. These are the things that God's people can expect. And if we understand that glorious promise and how Mark means to bring it to our attention, then we really understand the great doxology of praise that the crowd offers to Christ. I promise, boys and girls, we'd come back to think about doxology. And that's just what it means. It just means a song of praise, an expression of praise glorifying God. That's why we call that song that we sing in our liturgy the doxology, because it sings the praise of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, from whom all blessings flow. But the thing we find here at the end of Mark 7 is also a doxology. In a few minutes when the sermon is over, we'll sing another song that's a doxology. After communion, we'll sing a song of response. That's going to be another song of doxology. They're all songs that sing praise to God, that glorify God for what he's done for his people. And that's what they're doing here. They're glorifying God for what he's done for his people. And if we understand how Mark is drawing an allusion to Isaiah 35, we understand that the crowd is understanding that also on the basis of what they've seen. Because what have they been taught in Sunday school? When Messiah comes, the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the mute will speak and the lame will leap for joy. And what have they just seen before their eyes? They've seen deaf ears unstopped and a mute tongue loosened. They see what is happening. They see what it means. And that's why I think we're told something by Mark that he hasn't said about any other miracle that Jesus has, has done or performed to this point. That when they see this, they were amazed 
beyond measure. They were astonished beyond measure at what they've seen. I think it's an explanation, too, of why, even when Jesus tells them, do not tell this to anyone, they have to go out and tell people. They shouldn't, because he told them not to. But why can't they contain themselves? Because they've got the biggest news to share with people that you could have. Right? You can... They shouldn't have done it, but you can almost understand why someone would say, I think we've seen Messiah come. i got to share it with you. I think we've seen Messiah come. We've never seen something like this. They were astonished beyond all measure at what had happened. Why? Because I think they understand this is what Isaiah was talking about. This is what God said would happen when Messiah comes. And the readers of Mark's gospel know, not only has Jesus opened deaf ears and loosened a mute tongue, he's also already caused a lame man to walk. Remember the man that was dropped down through the roof and was healed of his lameness? That's three of the four things that that Isaiah talked about. You know what's going to happen in chapter 8? A blind man's eyes are going to be opened. That's four for four. There's no one else who's done that in the history of the world. Open the eyes of the blind. The people see that this is the promise. This is the promise that God made when he would come and save, that this is what would happen. And what does it cause them to do in response? They're not just amazed beyond all measure. They sing the praise of God. And they give to Jesus the highest praise that can be given. Which is, he has done all things well. He has done all things well. Who is the only person you can say of that? It's only God. Only God has done all things well. Right? That was the the message that God pronounced over his own work at the very beginning when he finished the work of creation. He pronounced over it, it is very good. It was his assessment of it. I have done all things well. It was a right assessment of that created world. That's Moses' assessment of God. In the song he gives the people in Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is the only one of whom it can be said, he does all things well. And what does the crowd say about Jesus? He has done all things well. This is who Jesus is. And what he does here gives us a wonderful glimpse into the kingdom of glory that he has come to bring. 
Because that's what these miracles are. It's the power of that kingdom of glory to come breaking in on this present evil age and showing us just a flash, like lightning flashing in the sky that briefly illuminates the darkness, showing us a glimpse of what that kingdom will be like. A kingdom of glory so great that it drives out every affliction. That sorrow and sighing go fleeing away from that kingdom. And all that's left is joy and gladness and wholeness. It's a brief glimpse into what Jesus is bringing into the world. The full extent of that great day that Isaiah spoke of had not yet come. It was not yet the then of all things being made new. We're still waiting for that day. That great day of complete restoration when everything in the world is radically changed. But what the people recognize and what Mark wants us to recognize by the power of the Spirit is we are getting a glimpse into that kingdom that's coming as well. That display of power that will one day radically change the world always and forever. When sorrow and sighing will flee away and there will only be everlasting and rejoicing in him. That great then has not yet arrived. That That kingdom of glory has not yet come. But we have seen the king. And we've seen what the king can do. And we've seen how the power of that kingdom that's coming has broken in on this world. And that carries with it the promise that just as it has broken in on this world in flashes and glimpses before in time and history, there is a time coming when it will break forth in all of its fullness. When the gracious Savior who came as a suffering servant to lay down his life for sinners on the cross, who, died, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, will come again in glory, not as a suffering servant, but as a triumphant king. And when he comes, that kingdom of grace that he's working in this world will become a kingdom of glory. It will be the then that Isaiah was talking about, when all things are made new. But do you see how when we understand that from this passage, we understand that that king is reigning and that kingdom is already at work. We've seen its power, and that power is at work in us. That power is at work for us, and there is a day coming that the scriptures teach us to think of coming soon when all of this radical change and restoration that we long for will be realized. And everyone who has put their faith and trust in Christ will see that day. And when we see that day, we'll have the words to say on that day. The words of doxology that we read here, we'll be able to see our Savior face to face and say to our God, He has done all things well. I'll end with a quote from J.C. Ryle reflecting on that day when we sing this doxology as resurrected Christians. Um, He ends with a quotation from 1 Corinthians 13.12, but he says this, We shall never see the full beauty of these words, he has done all things well, till the resurrection morning. 
we shall then look back over our lives and know the meaning of everything that happened from first to last. We shall remember all the way by which we were led and confess that all was well done. The why and the wherefore, the causes and the reasons of everything, which now perplexes, will be clear and plain as the sun at noonday. We shall wonder at our own past blindness and marvel that we could have ever doubted our Lord's love. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What a day that will be. To our Lord Jesus Christ be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, for he has done all things well. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this glimpse of the graciousness of our Savior. And we see in his graciousness to this poor afflicted man, the graciousness he has shown to us in his attention to us and communication to us and compassion for us, restoring us from our spiritual troubles. We thank you to be reminded that there is a great promise coming that the one who came once to save sinners is coming again not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And may we read this great doxology of praise that was rightly offered to the Lord, whether they understood it fully or not, but they rightly said that he has done all things well. We look forward to that day, Lord, when you will come again, when you send your Son again in glory, that he will come and he will make all things new, and then we will see the greatness of his radical work of restoration, and we will sing praises to him who has done all things well. We thank you that he is king now, that his power to, to restore is at work in us and at work in this world for us. We pray that we would hope in him and that long for that day to come quickly, when we will be able to sing his praise face to face and tell him with grateful hearts, Lord, you have done all things well. Hear us, we pray in his precious name.